0: Friends, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, in case you haven't clued into that recently. (laughs) We're in the midst of a season when there's a lot of competing voices in our lives and in our nation and in our world. And we, as the people of God, want to listen to Jesus' voice and invite Jesus' voice to be the guide for how we navigate all the other voices. And what I said last week, I will say this week. We are coming to the summit of the Sermon on the Mount at this point. This is the point for which the sermon is most admired and most resented. The point at which the sermon is most challenging and most life-changing for us. And you could potentially argue that nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian life more obvious than Jesus' call to love our enemies. And nowhere is our need for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit more necessary than this point here. Jesus calls his followers to love their neighbors and enemies alike. He says, you have heard that it was said, verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the Old Testament command to love your neighbor, which comes from Leviticus 19, and in Leviticus 19, the neighbor was defined as someone who is the same religion and race as you. Now, that command to love your neighbor was quite clear in the Old Testament law. Leviticus 19 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. But what we do not find in Leviticus 19, or I would say anywhere in the Old Testament law, is an explicit command to hate your enemies. In fact, I would even argue that you don't have to look very far to find God actually pointing somewhat in the other direction. Once again, Leviticus 19 itself says in verse 34, The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native-born, as if they were one of your own. Love them as yourself for you were foreigners in Egypt i am the lord your god so jesus says you've heard that it was said love your enemy or love your neighbor and hate your enemy and what i'm basically saying is in the old testament law you don't find the language of hate your enemy you find love your neighbor and you even find a trajectory in the old in the old testament law of expanding the circle that you're supposed to love from neighbor to include the foreigner who peacefully lives in your midst So what I think Jesus is doing here is he's picking up on this expanding trajectory that we find in Leviticus 19 itself, and he is expanding it even further than anybody wanted or expected to include one's enemies and persecutors. In other words, Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament law here. He is widening its circle of application precisely where the human heart would rather restrict it. So it seems that the scribes and Pharisees were reading the law and heard love your neighbor and then came to the instinctual conclusion that meant they had permission to hate their enemies. And Jesus says, no, if you actually paid attention to the trajectory of the law, it was to love those who were not even your neighbors. And so I'm telling you now, love those who persecute you, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, no matter how your enemies treat you, love them in return. And no matter what your persecutors do to you, pray for them in return. Why? It's really interesting to see the, Jesus, the reason that Jesus gives. He says, because this is an essential part of what it means to live as children of God. Notice how he links the way we treat our neighbors, our, our enemies, not on the nature of our relationship to our enemies, but rather on the nature of our relationship to God as Father. Like, to act this way towards our enemies is essential to what it means to be children of God. And how do we do this? Jesus says, you take your clue not from how your enemies treat you, but from how God treats you. Now, if you're like me, once again, I feel the need for stories, kind of concrete, lived examples to heal and shape my imagination because I have this instinctive sense that the law of reciprocity needs to be the default mode for how I treat people. And so stories can help. And one time I heard a story uh, about a woman who's, who was hanging out with her kids in the front yard, and as kids do, they throw balls, they throw toys across the street, and one landed in the other neighbor's garden and took out uh, basically a plant that the neighbor was really committed to. And the neighbor came over to the mother of those children in absolute rage and just reamed her out. I mean, in front of the children, in front of the neighborhood, just yelling and screaming about why she did not have better control of her children. And he could not believe it. And then he stormed across the street, and went back in his house. I mean, completely unnecessary response to a kid throwing a ball in somebody's car and hitting one of your plants. But one of the amazing things about this story is, as I was hearing it is there was an opportunity for this woman to respond in kind, to say that's not acceptable. And her husband was very angry when he found out later that day how she was treated by a neighbor. He wanted to go over there and give him a word or two. But the woman specifically said, no, give it 24 hours. I'm gonna bake some cookies, I'm gonna bake some bread and I'll bring it over tomorrow. Because if he acted that way, he must really be hurting. And so the husband said, okay, let's see how it goes. And basically the next day she baked stuff and she brought it over to the man who yelled at her and said, I know you yelled at me and that was not okay, but I can only assume that something is really troubling you and hurting you in your life. And so I wanted to bring you this gift of cookies and bread. And the man broke down and he proceeded to tell her how he was going through a divorce and she had no idea. And he had a lot of pent up anger over the brokenness of that relationship. (laughs) A more intense story, maybe, uh, maybe the story of Ruby Bridges in the 1960s are Kid friendly sacred conversation group had the privilege of reading this story on Tuesday evening, and it was a joy to watch Annabelle hear the story for the first time. Ruby was a young African American girl who lived in the South and was part of the first attempts at desegregation in the schools. Um, She was chosen, along with four other kids, at the age of six to be uh, one of the first Black children to attend an all white elementary school, and she was going to attend a school by herself. So needless to say, she was not very popular at that school, like parents were pulling their kids out of the school and throngs of people were in the streets protesting as she walked to school each day. And so much so that Ruby actually had to be escorted by guards to and from school. Now, her story was popularized when a a child psychiatrist from Harvard University, Dr. Robert Coles, wanted to meet Ruby, Ruby to study the toll that this must be taking on her young life. But what he discovered as he talked with young Ruby is that she showed no traceable signs of fear or anxiety or resentment or animosity. She never had a sleepless night. <laughs> and she always woke up in the morning ready to go to school again. And, and Robert Coles, he, he, he was astonished. He said, how is this possible? And Ruby's answer was really si- simple at six. She said, every day before and after school, I stop a few blocks away from school before I walk through the crowds, and I say a prayer for the people who hate me. And this is the prayer that I say. I say, please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them, just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. Amen. And we can go on about the story of Ruby for some time. But in the story of this neighbor responding to anger and hostility with bread and cookies, and Ruby responding to verbal hostility with prayers, I think we see something, just little glimmers and glimpses, of what it means to live out what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, No matter how your enemies treat you, love them in return. No matter what your persecutors do or say to you, pray for them in return. Now before going any further I think it's worth clarifying what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying. I Jesus is not saying first of all that we should act like we have no enemies. Now I think Jesus assumes in the sermon on the mount that those who live the kingdom life the way that he lives it are going to have enemies. And those who exhibit the character qualities of the beatitudes are going to experience pressure and persecution. That's why the very last beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows that to follow Jesus is to invite scorn and hostility from the world oftentimes. And that we should not assume that following Jesus will be easy or comfortable. I don't think Jesus is inviting us to deny our enemies or to suppress our feelings about them. And for me personally, and I think for lots of people, this is kind of where the imprecatory psalms I think play an important role in the Christian life. I mean, think of the less often quoted portion of Psalm 139. Listen to these words. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O people of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. See, some of the Psalms show us that the Bible does not invite us, and nor do I think Jesus does, to repress our emotions, but rather to unload them to God. The Psalms actually give us language to help us name the fact that we actually feel hatred. But instead of expressing it and taking it out on our enemies, They give us an opportunity to express it and bring it to God. Naming our enemies to God and how we really feel about them, I think, is often the first step to honestly seeking to follow Jesus in his command to love our enemies. Like, we've got to say, Jesus, this is how I really feel about this person. Yet I know you've called me to love them. So would you soften my heart? Would you show me your heart for them? Would you give me wisdom on what it looks like to love them? And would you empower me to obey? Jesus is not saying that we should act like we have no enemies. And in fact, naming it to God may be the first starting place in learning to love them. And second, Jesus does not limit who our enemy is. And I don't think we should either. Like the Greek word that Jesus uses for enemy is used a number of other times in the Gospels. And it has a wide range of references. It can refer on the one hand to personal enemies, um, such as members of one's own family, potentially. Or on the other hand, it can refer to national or political or even military enemies, as is most often the case in the Gospel of Luke. And thus, I think we should hear Jesus' words as broadly applicable as we possibly can, speaking both directly into our current family life, as well as directly into our current political and geopolitical situation and climate. Jesus is telling us that how we should treat those with whom we vehemently disagree, even those who intentionally oppose us and want our at a personal, at a national, at a political level. Number three, Jesus does not settle for tolerance or reciprocity. Notice there are a number of ways to respond to enemies. There's the law of reciprocity. So we mirror or we replicate um, in our actions how another person treats us. Jesus talks about this in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Are not even pagans doing that? And so Jesus is looking at the world and saying to his disciples, in the world, there's this natural law of reciprocity that's at work, where if if people hate you, if they treat you poorly, then you hate them in return, and you treat them poorly. Think of the political party politics applications here. He's saying, and the other hand, if people love you and care for you and protect you, then you love them in return and care for them and protect them in return. And so Jesus is saying there's this natural law of reciprocity at work in the world. But I'm telling you as disciples, I'm requiring more because I myself offer the world more. And there's another way of responding to enemies as well. It's not just the law of reciprocity, but maybe the law of tolerance. And this is often kind of like in a pluralistic society. What is given to us is the solution for dealing with enemies. It's told to us that you don't have to agree with your enemy or even like them, but you do have to learn to coexist with them. So leave them alone. Tolerate them you be you, let them be them, gather with like-minded people, and just leave those that disagree to you to themselves, and let's make sure that we have a tolerant, peaceful society. Now, don't get me wrong, tolerance is better than violence (laughs) in most cases, but Jesus is asking us to go further than the activity of reciprocity or the passivity of tolerance. He is commanding us, rather, to give to others precisely what they do not deserve and have not given to us. Now, once again, I think Jesus is challenging our natural instincts here. Instincts that have been cultivated in a culture with a strong, and I think often good, sense of fairness and merit. And I think Jesus is challenging our instincts because he wants to bring us into touch with the deep reality of the gospel. He does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done for us. He invites us to experience the richness of life that he has experienced and lives. I think we, we see this dynamic uh, in, in Romans chapter five. Paul says this This is how God's treated you, Paul says. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Notice that while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us and God loved us. In other words, Jesus is inviting us to respond to our enemies in the same way that God has responded to us. Our clue for how we are to treat other people is not to be taken from how other people treat us, but rather from how God has chosen to treat us. And we see this nowhere better than Jesus hanging on a Roman cross, those mocking him in his humiliating death and him mustering the final moments of strength that he can muster saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So practical question to kind of start nearing a conclusion. What does it look like to love our enemies today? I mean, there's, there's so many potential ways and answers to this, but I'm just going to focus on one. I'm going to say loving our enemies today means finding ways to show them mercy. Loving our enemies today means finding ways to show them mercy. Now, where do I get this? I get this from the final verse in our passage, where Jesus kind of recapitulates all that he has said about loving enemies, praying for those who persecute you. And he says, this is how you live. Verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word for perfection here could be also translated maturity. And if you look at this same sentence as it shows up in the Gospel of Luke, Luke puts a slightly different spin on it. He interprets Jesus' command this way as saying, Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. In other words, I think when you put Matthew's recording of Jesus and Luke's recording of Jesus side by side, we learn that God's maturity is reflected in our lives as we express to others mercy. God's maturity is reflected in our lives as we express to our enemies mercy. So what form does mercy take? I was reading an article this last week by um, a theologian that I actually um, studied for quite a while in Scotland for a few years. And I learned something that I didn't know before. He said that in the church's kind of history and tradition, the church developed um, an understanding of mercy as applying to the whole person, both body and soul. And so they developed two lists of seven acts of mercy, acts of mercy that address people in their bodily needs, and acts of mercy that address people in their spiritual needs. And I found this really helpful to actually think about my own life. Okay, how do I care for people in bodily needs? How do I care for them in spiritual needs? And so the seven bodily works of mercy are these. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, offering hospitality to the stranger, visiting the sick, ministering to the captives or the prisoners, and burying the dead. And then the seven spiritual works of mercy are instructing the ignorant, counseling doubters, admonishing sitters, bearing wrongs with patience, forgiving injuries willingly, comforting the afflicted and the downcast, and praying for others. Brothers and sisters, what a lovely list of things to lean into as the people of God. What a lovely list of things to be commanded and to be invited to follow Jesus in this present moment. I mean, amidst all the battle language in our country, which is drawing lines everywhere and naming and labeling, and it seems like there's enemies to the left and enemies to the right, how do we as the people of God show mercy to those who we think aren't on the same team as us, and maybe are even against us. Like, I think we're presented in this moment as the people of God, to break down walls of hostility by responding to people with mercy, exactly where they don't expect us to respond. I think sometimes we struggle with this because in intensive moments of an intense cultural pressure, we can become so focused on the faults of our enemies that we fail to see their needs anymore. And mercy is expressed precisely as we acknowledge another person's need and seek to meet it from the grace of God. Or maybe we become so focused on the evils of particular people or groups of people that we judge them unworthy of our time and effort. And Jesus is saying to us like, that's not the heartbeat of God. He makes the sun to rise, And sends rains on the just and on the unjust, on the good and on the evil. And so should we. And so, a final kind of pastoral question that I'm left with, at least as I'm wrestling with this passage, is okay, Lord, if you've identified enemies in my life that you want me to love where I have not been loving them or to pray for them where I've not been praying for them. Like, Lord, what do I do if I'm stuck? In cycles of cynicism and resentment and anger and hostility and bitterness towards these people. Because if I'm stuck in that place, I'm finding it really difficult to reach out to them in mercy. When So I just want to share with you a short imaginative kind of prayer exercise that I learned from a pastor named Daryl Johnson. He was a pastor in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, but also in, in Glendale for a number of years as well. And... He said, one of the things that you can do when you're having a tough time (laughs) dealing with resentment hostility and anger in your life towards enemies is is get on your knees. If you have a cross in your house, then face the cross. Get on your knees, close your eyes, and imagine that you are with those who were mocking Jesus at the foot of his cross in Golgotha. That you're at the foot of his cross, Jesus bleeding and scourged and hanging in his final moments. You're kneeling before him and you are hearing Jesus say, Father, forgive this son or daughter, for they know not what they do. Imagine that you're before the cross and And all the ways that you have treated people with anger or with hostility or with hate or with judgment are coming to mind. And yet Jesus is speaking to you words of forgiveness and grace as he hangs there. And then he says, Imagine that as you're looking at Jesus' face, you notice his eyes glance behind you off into the horizon. And so you turn your head to look to see what he's looking at. And you notice. That the person or the group of people that you consider enemies is in the background in the distance watching you but afraid to come near and jesus looks back at you and you realize as you look at jesus eyes that he wants those enemies to be able to draw near and kneel at his cross as well and you're the one that is the bridge between them. And then he says, now, this is the hard part. Turn around back to your enemies and invite them to come kneel with you before the cross, and then sit with that feeling. What does it feel like to kneel next to your enemy before the cross? and behold the face of Jesus. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.